Before Mike comes up and preaches, I want to read to uh, read over us this morning from First Peter chapter two. These are verses uh, nine through twelve. You can listen along or flip there if you're fast. Reads like this: But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Thanks, BJ. Sorry, I just realized as I was talking, I showed the side of the room my better side. Um, Apologize for that. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, If you're new here, welcome. We hope you feel really welcome here fellowshipping with us. Um, My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor and just uh, so blessed to be able to be home this week. Uh, Last week I was absent, and so um, it's so good to be back. Um, As Todd referred to last week, as he taught, um, the door on our plane stayed intact, so we're here. Um, and And I'm so excited to be able to share with you guys this morning. So um, just as a reminder, you guys, the church is so much more than a place that we gather. Um, I hope for all of us that when we're away from fellowship with other believers, it feels like we've been away from home. It feels like we've been traveling or we've been away from where we belong. And um, it feels so good to be home and not just to be present in North Idaho again. It feels so good to be home and to be with the body to be with my church family. Um, There's a noticeable absence in my life when I'm not with you guys. So thank you. Thank you for being my family. Thank you for being uh, the friends and the people that I get to um, share my life with. As we turn this morning to the gospel, Mark chapter 13, we're going to pick up in verse 14 where Todd left off last week as we continue to march verse by verse um, through the gospel of Mark. I'm super excited to be coming down to the last few chapters in this gospel. And if you missed last Sunday's message, I want to encourage you to do what I did and listen to the podcast because Todd did an amazing job uh, teaching the beginning part of this chapter. And I am so blessed to have amazing um, elders and pastors and teachers in this church that um, I'm not only supported by, but that I get to learn from. And so it's, it's a blessing to be able to listen to them teach and um, listen to them make fun of me when I'm not present. So that's all in good taste. So I encourage them to do that often. Um, Before we begin this morning, just feel this pressing need for us to pray for the Lord to help. For the Lord to help us wherever we're at. Whatever we're going through right now, whatever's in our mind, whatever's in our hearts, that the Lord would help us to hear his word and to um, not only grow from it, but to apply it and to be enriched by it and to have a closer walk with him when we leave this building this morning. It's my desire for all of us. This is my desire for myself and for you. So would you join me in prayer? And I just want to pray that the Lord would help us this morning. Jesus, I, I just thank you that we can come to you 
that we can approach the throne room of grace because of what you've done, and we can receive help, we can receive mercy in our time of need. Lord, I don't think that there's been any moment in my life where I have not felt like I've been in a time of need. Lord, we're always in need of you. We're always in need of your your ministry in our hearts, your love, your care. We're completely relying upon you. And so, Lord, maybe some of us right now don't feel like we're sinking in the Sea of Galilee, but we all together want to cry out and say, Lord, help. Would you help us where we are? Would you open our minds? Would you open our hearts to you and to your word? And would you allow us, Lord, to receive from you today? Lord, I just admit I need your help this morning. God, I need you to speak through me. I need your Holy Spirit to work in this place. Lord, without you, none of this matters. But Jesus, because you're here and because your spirit is here, it all matters. And so, Lord, we just recognize our reliance on you. We are nothing without you as you are the vine and we are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being here. Use this time for your glory. And Lord, draw us close to you. May we have a closer walk with you when we exit this building today. Jesus, it's our heart's desire, and we ask it in your name. Amen. The Olivet Discourse began in verse 5. If you were here last week, that's what you guys began as you're studying through Mark chapter 13. Um, It's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, which would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. While Matthew's record holds the most detail of this discourse as Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and, and is looking, if you've ever been on the Mount of Olives, you know that it's a very picturesque setting of Jerusalem. And you would see in his time the temple and the beauty of the city there. And Jesus is talking to his disciples about not only things that have, gone, have happened, but things that are going to happen both in the near future and in the distant future. And so here, as Mark and Luke's accounts are very similar to each other, we're going to work our way through kind of the middle section of Mark chapter 13. And here Mark's account of these teachings from Jesus contained in chapter 13 in its entirety. We won't see all of them in where we're studying this morning. Uh, We see six warning statements that are sprinkled throughout this discourse. Uh, Statements that I believe lend us a lens of perspective to view this text through. Because when you see something repeated often, it should cause us to pause and consider why it's being said so often. It's kind of like when your parents used to tell you to do something and they'd repeat themselves a lot. Why would they do that? Well, it's so that you would remember and actually do it. Didn't work with me much, but that was the desire of my mother's heart. So here... In Mark chapter 13, up there in front of you, you can look at these. If you have your Bible open to Mark 13, you can look at these verses. And here are the six warnings that are given in this chapter. Again, we won't be looking at all of these this morning as our section of study is going to be um, condensed to the middle. However, in verses 5 through 6, we see this. Jesus speaking in all of these situations. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. Verse 9, but be on your guard, but you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. 
verses 22 through 23. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. Verse 33. Watch. Be alert. For you don't know when the time is coming. Verse 35. Therefore, be alert. Since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. It's kind of like taking a flight home right now. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Now, what is it that you think Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples in this moment? Be alert. Watch. Be ready. None of these things uh, connects to rest, relax, close your eyes, take a snoozer. All of these things are pay attention statements. There's exclamations. Be watchful. Be mindful. Look. And of these warning statements, two are about false messiahs. One is about persecution. And three are about the true messiahs coming. Those are the focuses of these warnings. Now, within this chapter, even more fascinating to me is there are 19 imperatives that are used between verses 5 and 37. And this makes it abundantly clear that the main purpose of the discourse is not to satisfy curiosity about the future, but to give practical, ethical teaching that is applied now. A way of life that we ought to be living because there's 19 imperatives given. Watch now, be alert now, be prepared now. It's for the moment. It's not trying to figure out something that's coming. Here we find Jesus combining eschatology with exhortation with the emphasis on the latter. His focus is not so much on the eschatological outcome, although he does reveal some things. The point of the, of the message and what he's teaching is that we would receive exhortation, and here's what he wants us to be exhorted to do, to live and to witness in a hostile world. He's preparing his people to live and to witness in a hostile world. This is preparation. That's the purpose of the watchfulness, of all the statements of being aware, being alert, being prepared, keeping your eyes open, if you will, that we would remain present and reliant upon the Holy Spirit as exiles, which is why I had BJ this morning read from Peter's furthering of this subject in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, listen, live as exiles. Recognize who we are. He goes, you're sojourners. You don't belong in the, the ways of this world. In fact, the king is coming and he's going to set things the way they ought to be. And what we do as exiles is we live a kingdom lifestyle for the world to see, to witness. Amen? We are here to live kingdom lifestyles so that they would see the good works that God is doing amongst his people and give glory to God. And so this present place where we live, we live as exiles, that we would learn from God's word, that we would daily come to Jesus and say, show us how to live and witness in a hostile world. Because I don't know if we really think about this that often, but this has been a hostile world since Genesis 3. This has been a world that has known hostility and sin and danger and fear and we are to be in the world. But what? Not of it. Because we're God's people. Amen? My goal, if you haven't caught on yet, is to encourage you this morning. That by the power of the Spirit, we can live in this way 
in a hostile world, that we can be witnesses in a hostile world. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, this is what we've seen, this is what we're seeing, and what's coming shortly, and this is what the end's going to look like. We shouldn't be afraid of it. And I don't think we should spend a lot of time trying to figure it out either. I think what his exhortation to us is, is live presently right here, right now, and minister to those who are around you. Because, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I'm skipping to the end. You guys got me monologuing. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 13, let's pick up in verse 14 where you guys left off last week. Jesus still speaking says this. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here's the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the word of our Lord. Backing up back to verse 14, we're just going to take this one step at a time. We'll take it from verse 14 and move forward. The expression abomination of desolation probably brings a lot of different thoughts to our minds. It's going to bring up a lot of different trains of thought in our minds. And it's derived from the book of Daniel in three key places. We see it in Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11. In Matthew's gospel, he records in this discourse Jesus referring directly to Daniel. And he says, as the prophet Daniel said, and as he spoke of. And so he directs it connect, directly connects it to the prophet. An abomination, if we look at this and we look at what the words actually mean, an abomination is something that is repugnant to God. It's something that's disgusting to him. The term desolation suggests that because of the abomination, the temples left deserted and desolate and true worshipers have left. So because of this repugnant thing to God, there has been a desolation or a abandonment of the temple. Now, the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy came in 167 B.C. Uh, as a representative, Antiochus IV Epiphany sent um, men there to desecrate the temple and the altar in Jerusalem, and it spurred the Maccabean revolt. You can read about it in history. The fact that Jesus uses the same expression here makes it clear that its fulfillment was not restricted, however, to the events of the Maccabean revolt, but he's bringing it into the present as well. And there are some different view, viewpoints on how that plays out. And people like to die on these hills. I will not. I'm not going to die on any of those hills. Here's what I do want to say about this. In those different viewpoints to what Jesus is referring to, we need to remember why he's bringing this into the limelight. 
Why is Jesus bringing this into the limelight? Why is he calling our attention to it? As he sits here on the Mount of Olives, there is a future situation where this is going to come into play. And he's speaking to whom? Whom is he speaking to? It's his disciples, correct? The best solution is to understand as we look at what Jesus says, as we've already read and we're going to dig into more, is to understand that the abomination that causes desolation has multiple fulfillment. It has multiple fulfillment. We can see it fulfilled in the Maccabean period that's already happened at this point. And that would be what happened at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes in 167. They've already seen this happen, which means that when Jesus, or when, yeah, when Jesus references that, they're thinking of what Daniel prophesied and what they saw happen to their people in their history. It also has another fulfillment in the events of 66 to 70 AD, which are about to happen. This is about to happen in the Roman period where an estimated 350,000 Jews are going to be killed and the rest are going to be dispersed and the church will be dispersed as Rome comes. And remember, don't forget this, Todd talked about it last week. What were they looking at as they're sitting on the, the Mount of Olives? Right now in this situation as he's teaching. They're looking at the temple. And remember, they're like, look at these buildings. I mean, look at these stones. And Jesus says to them what? Not one stone will be left upon another. When does that happen? It happens at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. They're going to desecrate the Temple Mount. They're going to tear it down stone by stone. So we see this fulfilled in the Roman period. But we also see this fulfilled in one more, and we can see an application in the end times as well, which has not yet come to pass, and that's where people like to debate the most, is how that's going to happen. We'll just look at the words of Jesus and let him explain that to us in our text. The following warnings from verses 14 through verse 18 are hard to ascribe to the end time because no one's going to be able to flee from the judgment of God. They're hard to ascribe to the end, but if you think about what happened during 66 and 70 AD, they make a lot of sense. They make a lot of sense for what's about to happen in the nation's history forthcoming. At the hands of Rome and the destruction of the temple, that's talked about at the beginning of the chapter, and now here it makes good sense that the context of the approach of the Roman army that would happen in 70 AD would be warned of in these passages when he says, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, get out of town. Why? Well, people understood this in his time. The Romans are coming. And how much mercy did the Romans show? None. A man on the housetop shouldn't come down or go in to get anything out of his house. Get out of town Leave everything behind. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. And woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Because it would be a horrible thing to be having to flee Jerusalem when the Romans attacked as a nursing mom or a pregnant woman. Mostly because if you think about not just the fear and the danger and the terrain, but think about this. If the flight took place during winter, which Jesus says, pray that it's not in winter, it would be all the more difficult since the cold and the rain-swollen valleys and ravines would prevent formidable hazards for women and children to cross. If it was wintertime, this was hazardous in a very big way. These warnings and woes seem to especially appropriate to what actually occurred at the time of destruction in Jerusalem. We have the benefit of looking back and looking at what happened between 66 and 70 AD and seeing that this was a horrifying time to be in Jerusalem. 
The Christians in the city we know from history fled to the mountains, to Pella and Perea. Even the believers were chased out of Jerusalem at that time. Like with the prophecies of the Old Testament, where you will find sometimes in the same verse at the same time, a prophecy that's fulfilled in one time period and one that's more fully fulfilled in another. See, for example, Isaiah 9, where it says, for unto us a child will be born. And then it talks about his dominion and his kingdom and his rule and the names that he will have. Well, we definitely have seen Jesus come as a child, but when have we seen him rule in the ways that Isaiah prophesied that he would? We haven't seen that yet. Will we? Find Aunt Bippy, because you can bet your sweet Aunt Bippy you will. Okay. (laughs) I wish I had an Aunt Bippy. (laughs) But that's it, you guys. It's going to happen. We just haven't seen it happen yet. There's an already not yet aspect to that prophecy. And I think that's what we're seeing here too. But now here in verse 19, the primary temporal reference is going to shift to the time of the end. Because we look at the details that we've seen happen in 66 to 70 AD and understand he's talking about something that we haven't quite seen yet. Verse 19 says this, for those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. Verse 20, if the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved, but he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Verse 19 is drawn from Daniel 12, 1, and it reveals that the intensity of the events of 70 AD will not match what will happen at the end. There's something more coming, even more intense, and that shouldn't scare us in the least. Verse 19 reveals that although there is similarity to the situations, that the severity of the days of the tribulation at the end has not been seen and will not be seen thereafter. It's a more intense time. It's a more intense situation. There could be a shortening reference in verse 20 for both the believers who went through the severity of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem, and it is certainly applicable for the context of the end times. For the sake of his own, God will cut the days of the tribulation short for the sake of his people. If you want to title that with something, call it grace. Even when God has righteous reason to judge, we see he offers mercy and grace in those times. Are we the same way? Even when someone's completely in the wrong, even when somebody deserves something, are we like our God who cuts things short? He does it for our sake and he calls us to do it for others as well. It's important to remember at the darkest times that this world has ever seen that God's grace and mercy are still present and at work and visible. That's an incredible thing for us a lot of times when we think either in terms of judgment and wrath or in terms of love and grace, you realize that God is all of those things all the time. He's the perfect balance of righteousness and holiness and grace and mercy. It's why we love him so much. It's why we struggle in the middle to find balance. We're like, but I want justice and judgment, but, but, but mercy and grace. And God is all those things blended together. And if you're like, I don't know how those fit together sometimes, welcome to the struggle of being finite when we look at the infinite. You're understanding what it feels like to be a finite human being with limits, looking at a limitless God and going, I'm having a hard time comprehending how you work. And God says, I know, it's because I am. It's because we look at God and he is so holy and so loving and so righteous. It's what sets us apart. We're like, we're not like you. Make us like you. Do you struggle with balance? Do you struggle with being balanced in your life like 
the perfect mix of emotions? No, it's just me. Great. You guys, we all struggle with this. We all struggle with that. But God in his spirit is molding us into the image of Jesus who is perfectly balanced in every way. You guys, the section of this discourse, which began in verse 5, ends in an amazing way. It began with a warning against false Christs. It began with a warning about false messiahs. And this is what I love. This section ends with the same warnings, and then it will continue on and reveal to us there's going to be no mistaking when the real Messiah comes. You're not going to be able to miss it. I'm getting ahead of myself again. Verse 21. I just can't. I love talking about Jesus. It says in verse 20, Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah. See there. Don't believe it. For false messiahs, verse 22 says, and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. Don't be led astray. False messiahs, false prophets, antichrists are nothing new in Scripture. They're sprinkled all throughout. It's funny, as I was thinking about this passage, where my mind went is I thought about Jans and Jambres. Remember the two guys that were contending against Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh? And they were doing these incredible things that you don't really see happen. They were working some witchcraft that was next level stuff. I mean, they weren't faking out what your palm was telling them. I mean, they're, they're dropping rods on the ground. They're turning into snakes. That's legit. Some people would probably be deceived to think that that was actually the power of God, wouldn't they? that there was power there that could save them, but it was not. It was a false Messiah. It was a false use of sorcery. And in the end, we saw that, right? Aaron lays down the rod. What does it do? It eats theirs. That'd be cool to see. That'd be pretty cool to see. But as I was thinking about this, false prophets, false messiahs, antichrists, these are sprinkled all throughout Scripture. Intended to lead astray. God warned his people about them in the law. In Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, his people are warned, don't follow after these people. You stay with me. And John the Apostle in the New Testament reminded us that many antichrists have already come in his time. They deceive not just through their words, but as the Lord reveals, they can even wield powerful signs and wonders to seduce people to follow them. So powerful that if it were possible, Jesus says, even those who are in Christ would fall for them. John encourages the church, however, in 1 John chapter 2. This is such a powerful passage. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Children, I like how he calls his kids. Children, it's, it's an endearing term. It is the last hour. Question, what time period did John think he was living in? The last hour. If he was ready for Jesus to come back, are we? He continues, And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour, because they're here, he says. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. He says, It's evident that they don't belong to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. How do you stand against 
false teaching, false messiahs, false prophets, antichrists in this world know the truth. Jesus is the way, the, and the life. Know Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. That's how you'll know. I have not written to you, John continues in verse 21, because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. I love that teaching. I feel like it's, it's such a, a, a further explanation of so many things that we struggle with in this world when we look at what to believe, what not to believe, and how we're being led astray. Jesus, the good shepherd, tells us his sheep in advance what to watch out for. And he says the goal of false messiahs, prophets, antichrists is to lead astray. It's to lead his people astray. Think about how the enemy not only wants to destroy those who belong to the Lord, but how effective has he been in distracting us from what Jesus has placed us here to do. When you think lead astray, your mind might naturally go to, well, I shouldn't believe in any false doctrine. That is true. That is true. And the word of God is truth. So you can know what to believe by following God's word. However, how many of us have been led astray by lifestyle through lack of application? How many of us know the truth but are not doers of the truth? Do you understand why James spent a little bit of time there? Because he says, here's the thing. You have to be doers of the word. You have to be someone who lives that out. You're like, well, James, whatever could you mean? What does that look like? He says, well, pure undefiled religion before God the Father is this. Look after orphans and widows. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Don't be led astray. Live your life to serve and honor God. It's not just about what you know. It's about what you do. And Jesus is calling his followers to remember, don't be led astray and follow after anything of this world that takes you from the reason why Jesus has placed you here in this time for a reason, because he has already ordained good works to be done by you according to Christ. He's already placed you here to do a work for his namesake, for his glory. Don't be led astray or drawn into anything that detracts from that. Or don't be distracted from that either. This is why we weigh everything we hear and see against the word of God. And I want to encourage you that it's not wrong to look at where God's taking you in your life and to have to say no to some things. Sometimes in life we have to say no to some things to stay on focus and to stay on track with God. I could preach a whole other sermon on that. I won't. But sometimes we need to simplify so that we're not led astray. Think about it this way. How many times am I so busy that I'm not busy doing his work? How many times am I so distracted that I can't hear him? Or I can't see the people around me that he wants me to minister to. Let us be aware. It's almost like he, he's encouraging us to be alert. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Be watchful. Be alert. Pay attention. This matters. Don't be led astray by anything. Don't get distracted. Remember why he has you here. You are his ambassadors, Paul says. And what's our message 
It's the message of reconciliation for Morsi, 2 Corinthians 5, but I'll give you the cliff notes. He says this, you are Christ's ambassadors and here's your message to the world. Be reconciled to God. You're not here trying to figure out how they're going to end. You're here calling them to reconciliation. We are here to call the people of this world to be reconciled to God who loves them and died for them. That is the message of reconciliation. Our God has not only equipped us to decipher the truth of his word, to understand lies of the world, but he enables us to live and witness in the midst of a world that is already deceived. We can stand in this world and bring the truth and show them who our God is. We don't have to hide from it. We don't have to tuck ourselves away from it. In fact, we can live in it and not be of it. Well, let's get to the really good part. All this is good, but this is my favorite part. Because in verse 24, we start talking about Jesus coming back. He says, in those days, we'll talk about that transition there, that adversative, but in those days. After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. God just sends out his servants. Jesus sends them out and says, bring my people, bring my children to me. Ooh, that's so cool. I love that. And I picture what that looks like, but it's too comical in my head, and I, it, it's, not, it's not helpful. You guys, these final verses are a unit. These verses we just read, verses 24 through 27, they're a unit. And whereas verses 5 through 23 can point to both destruction of Jerusalem and the end time, Jesus uses a strong adversative. It's pronounced Allah. It's not, don't think... Islam Allah think Allah is an adversative that switches the context and he says but that's what Allah is in those days now if you know your Old Testament you know what in those days refers to because it's often used in the Old Testament it's an eschatological expression that's used commonly in places like Jeremiah 3 Jeremiah 31 33 Joel 3 Zechariah 8 they're on the screen if you want to look them up later you know what I mean. My camera's always on silent, so I just press the button. But, you know, is that still connecting with people? Do people still think camera when they hear that? Okay. No one has cameras anymore. They just have phones. Notice how different in the midst of this, as he's talking about this is something that's going to come. This is talking about something that has not happened yet. Notice how different the coming of the Son of Man will be. We don't have to chase around anyone who claims to know some new truth or some new Messiah, or some new belief that's leading us in a different direction. Because if you want to know who Jesus is, he is going when he returns to reveal himself. And there's not going to be any doubt about it. The way he's going to do it will be so demonstrative, you couldn't miss it if you tried. Drawing from those descriptions in the Old Testament of the day of the Lord, Jesus reveals there will be such a demonstration of power at his coming that there will be no mistaking that the true Messiah is here. We don't have to go looking for him. He is going to come so powerfully we couldn't possibly miss it. You know, I don't want to be in my basement because then I'm going to miss Jesus coming back. It's not how it's going to work. You won't be able to miss it. 
the repeated assertion in scripture, this is fascinating to me, that the end times will be accompanied by cosmic disturbances, seems to imply that there will be an unprecedented celestial disturbance of some sort that's quite literal. In other words, things will probably be physically happening when this happens. And some people are like, oh, it's symbolism. Well, some of it may be, but it's so consistent in Scripture, it seems to me a straight reading of the text is that this is going to be a very physical thing. Because Jesus is very physically coming back. And so, I mean, maybe I'm a simpleton, but that's just how I think. It's like Jesus is very physically coming back, and his creation is very physically responding. That just makes sense to me. And at the very least, you're going to hear me whoop-whooping from 3,000 miles away. Here's the important thing for us to remember. In the midst of all of this, as Jesus is teaching this, in the midst of a passage that so many people want to take in different directions, and I'm doing my very best to just look at the text for what it says, for what it is. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13, helps us a little bit. And Peter says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Sorry, that text is so small. You can use your Bible if you need to. <laughs> I want it all in one. On that day, Peter writes, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, notice where Peter goes. It is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Notice what the emphasis of Peter's words are, how we ought to live. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Amen? Can't wait. Can't wait for Jesus to reign. But you guys, do you notice what the emphasis of this is upon? It's how we are living. It's how we are conducting ourselves in godliness and holiness as we wait and we hasten. It's coming like we are so ready for Jesus to be here. And like, but I don't really know what my life should look like while I'm living here. How do I live holy and righteous and and, and have the right kind of conduct? How do I stay focused on what's important to God now? Look to Jesus who already won. (laughs) Look to Jesus. He already gave us the example of how to do it. And what did he do? He ministered to people. He taught them. He fed them. He blessed them. He cried with them. He bled for them. You want to know what a holy life looks like? What a righteous life right here looks like? It looks the same as it did 2,000 years ago. It looks like Jesus. And that's what he's called us to do. That's what he's calling us to do in this text as he reveals that things are going to happen that I have a hard time wrapping my mind around. It's not for me to figure out. I don't even know the day. I don't know when it happens. By the way, that's a surefire sign that you're following a false prophet. You know, people get caught up in these things back in the old days. They'd be like, oh, it's going to happen at such and such a time on January 15th. Really? False prophet. You know, you, he said no one knows. Nobody knows. And the point is not to know that. The point is to live righteously right now and not be distracted by what the world's falling to. Of all of this will climax in the return of Jesus. 
It's all going to climax with Jesus coming back. The culmination of history will be the return of our Lord and Savior, the one who created it in the first place. For more, read Colossians 1. But church, can I encourage you? Thank you. <laughs> like, we're done. No, please, let me encourage you, please. Six times. Six times in this chapter, which we're going to conclude next week. We'll look at a couple more of them next week as we close it. But six times Jesus calls his disciples to be watchful, to be alert, to watch out, to be on your guard so that we would learn and be empowered to live and witness in a hostile world. We are called to be watchful so that we would live, not so that we would hide. That we are here to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to human beings that he died to save. And if we're if we were left to only see the tribulation and the difficulty that was coming, boy, would it be difficult to soldier on after a while, wouldn't it? If all we were looking at was how bad things are. Do we fall to that now? Are we caught up in pessimistic thinking of this world's such a terrible place where it's never been this bad before? I would contend to come sit and let's read some history together. We'll see just how bad it's been. But that argument doesn't matter because what matters most is that we're not focused on the wrong thing or being distracted by how bad things are, that we are calling out to God to use us in the time he's placed us in because he is going to return. This is a passage of hope. This is a passage of encouragement because the Son of Man is coming. Our Savior is returning. We're not left wondering what happens next. And so we ought always to cherish a confident hope because it will not be by human means but by heavenly power which will be far superior to every obstacle that the Lord will gather his church. Jesus is going to gather his church and nothing will stop him. Jesus is going to return and rule and nothing will stop him. And if that doesn't encourage you, I'm out. I got nothing left. Because that is the most encouraging thing that I have ever heard. Is that despite anything that attempts to stop him, Jesus Christ is not only victor, but he's returning to reign in victory forever. Amen? That's the most exciting thing. The purpose of watchfulness is hope. It's confident hope that Jesus is coming back soon. Amen? Pray with me. Worship team, you can come on in. Lord, I know that um, when speaking of eschatology, when speaking of things that are going to come in the end, and Lord, there are many passages that we could go to and look at and study together, and we will someday. But Lord, for right now, as we look at this text and we seek to understand what your intention was for your disciples in this moment, sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking at Jerusalem, Lord, I pray that we would sit there with your disciples and we would be so encouraged hearing you speak not only of all the things that are going to happen 
all the difficulty, but hearing you speak the words that you are going to return and by your power, you will gather your people, your church to yourself and that nothing is going to be able to stand in your way. Lord, at times it feels like many things are standing against us or standing in our way, trying to stop us from being with you, from worshiping you. Jesus, nothing can stop that. You said yourself that those who the Father has given to you are in your hand, and who's going to snatch them out? Nobody can take us from you. Not even in death can we be parted from you. In fact, to be absent from the body is to be present with you. And so Jesus, just encourage us today. Lord, I pray on on just a deep spiritual level in our hearts, would you encourage us that you're still in control? Jesus, that you have won, you defeated sin and death, that we have new life in you and that you are returning and you are going to set everything right. Don't let us get jaded. Don't let us become bitter at the world. Don't let us become bitter against people. But Lord, I pray that we would be your ambassadors and we would be preaching that message to them that you sent us here to preach, which is be reconciled. And Jesus, I ask that you would reconcile the lost in our city, in our county, in our state, in our country, and in our world for your glory. Jesus, I ask that you would commission us and send us to do just that. That as we leave here this morning, I pray, God, that we would be encouraged, we would be built up, we would be so on fire and excited to see how you're going to reach the lost and how you're going to encourage the church through the things that we get to share in and that we get to share with them. Thank you, Lord, for your church, and thank you that we don't stand individually alone. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us into a family and into a body. Unify us, Lord, for that purpose, to be light in darkness. We ask it in your name.